Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. Today, we're talking about failure. But what exactly does that mean? Is failure always a bad thing? And if it isn't always bad, how can we turn that seemingly destructive, negative moment into a positive that might actually lead on to some of our greatest successes? Welcome to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. But you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody, welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Thank you so much to everybody that's listened, downloaded or watched the podcast so far. And especially big thank you to everybody that took a moment out of their own day to write back to me over the last few weeks. Whether it's in a comment under the YouTube video, whether it's rating and reviewing the podcast in the podcast stores, something that I would really appreciate it if you could go and do that, hugely important. I read every single one. Many of you got in touch via social media this week too, just telling me what you're taking from these podcast episodes. People telling me that it's influencing their lives, that it's giving them a positive boost for their day or for their week, that they're going about their business in a slightly different way, having perhaps learned something that I've been able to forward on to you. Things that These are all things that I've learned through my time in Formula One. If I can pass them on to you and you can benefit, please do let me know how that's working out for you. Let me know what you're taking from it. Honestly, I read them all, I respond to every single one that I can, and they genuinely light up my day. So please keep that coming. Also a big thank you to Omelagato Watches, my new partner on this journey with Pit Lane Life Lessons. If you're not yet familiar with them, they are the largest collection of motorsport inspired watches in the world. And I'm not talking about merch here. This isn't team merch. These are beautifully designed, beautifully manufactured watches inspired by some of the most iconic moments in motorsport history, some of the most important venues that racing happens in, some incredible liveries that we all know and love. And those designs have influenced the designs of these beautiful watches that they make. They're a joy to deal with in terms of their customer service. They really do embody many of the messages that we talk about here on the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. So omelagatowatches.com is where you'll find them. Go check them out. They're also reasonably priced, very affordable, but you're getting an awful lot for your money. So go and have a look. Anyway, today is about failure. And failure is one of these things that we're often taught, in fact, we're almost always taught, especially as kids, that it's it's just a negative, it's just a bad thing. Failure is bad, it should be avoided at all costs. We talked last week about success and celebrating successes, and yet if you look up the word failure in most dictionaries, one of its definitions is simply a lack of success. It's very binary, isn't it? We win or we lose, we succeed or we fail. It's one or the other. But I don't believe it's quite that on or off. I don't believe it's quite that binary. I believe that there are, there is a, an entire spectrum of types of failure, of reasons for failure, of outcomes that come from failure. And that spectrum is vast. Some of those might be blameworthy. And that's the bit that we all teach our kids that someone's always to blame for failure. And if I fail as a child, if I 
put my test in and I get poor marks, I've failed. I get a grade that tells me if I pass or I fail. And if I failed, it's my fault, I'm to blame. There's no one else to blame here, it's down to me. So some of the failures on life's spectrum, yeah, they're blameworthy. They are people making unforced errors because they weren't concentrating or paying attention. They might be people deliberately or actively going against the rules, breaking the rules, going against protocol. Those are failures that probably do have blame attached somewhere and probably can be easily avoided in one way or another. But at the opposite end of that spectrum, there's a whole array of failures that maybe are not blameworthy, but are actually praiseworthy. Failures that we should almost be celebrating. And I'll go on to explain more about what I mean with that. And of course, in between both ends of that spectrum, there's a vast array of all sorts of failures that sit somewhere in the middle, where a process may not have been good enough and led to a failure, but we can learn from that and make it better. Where the environment changed and therefore the process that we were working towards no longer was fit for purpose and we failed. There's a whole vast array, endless spectrum of failures. What I want to explain and hopefully pass on to you is that I've learnt, especially through my time in Formula One, that sometimes failing is just a necessary part of the journey towards success. Because what we teach our children is that we should avoid failure at all costs, that Failure is the end of the road. If you don't pass those exams, you can't go to the university. You will not get the job that you want. Failure is a dead end and should be avoided at all costs. And if we fail and you get the chance to try again, you better not fail twice. So as we go through life and we grow up and we start working and we start building businesses and organisations, it's little wonder that so many people in life still fear failure because that's what we've had drummed into us for so many years. Well, one of the things that Formula One has taught me over my time is that, of course, we're all striving to win. It's a competitive business and, you know, that's why we exist. We exist to score points, to get podiums, ultimately to win. We're all trying to win races and world championships. I've been very fortunate to do those things and be on the winning side of those things, but on a number of occasions, on many, many occasions, both before and after the big success, has come numerous failure. And what those things have taught me is that the failure is 100% not an end point. That is not the end of the story. If we, if we stop treating failure like it's the end, like it's game over, and we treat failure as just a stepping stone towards success, it's just a part of that process. We will all learn faster. We will all learn more. And actually, we will all succeed in the end, probably quicker than we would have done otherwise. Let me take you back to my early years, even before I got into Formula One. I'd set my sights on that being my dream, getting to F1. Success for me was getting to become a Formula One mechanic. Ultimately, my goal was to be part of a Formula One pit stop crew. And so I got onto the motorsport ladder as a kid. I started working through the, the various categories of racing. And all the way through, I began writing letters to all the Formula One teams, essentially asking for a job. And these were actual letters back then. Remember those? Handwritten letters. When I think back to the first of those letters that I started to send to the teams, 
they were pretty poor, if I'm honest. They didn't give the best account of me. They weren't necessarily well written. They weren't clear and concise. They, they didn't sell me very well. And the result of that was that most of the Formula One teams didn't bother responding. I got nothing. One or two wrote letters back, a very standard HR letter saying, thank you, we have nothing, or no jobs available at the moment, we'll keep your name on file, blah, blah, blah. And when I got that result of that effort to try and get my first opportunity in Formula One, which was a failure, wasn't it? Because hardly anyone replied anyway, and when somebody did, they were saying, no, I failed. Now, a number of people would have probably given up at that point, but I didn't. I analysed what I'd done. I thought about the letters that I'd written. I thought, I wonder why they haven't written back, or I wonder why they've given me this bog-standard letter with nothing much more in it. And of course, some of the conclusions I drew were, well, there were probably hundreds or thousands of people writing letters to them every single month. We haven't got time to write back to everybody. But I didn't give up. I kept going. This was my dream. So I wrote more letters and I began to refine the way that they were written. I began to say a bit more about myself, to give a, a slightly better account of myself, to tie in some of the experiences that I'd had that I thought might be relevant to a Formula One team. And I got some replies, a few more replies. They all said, no, sorry, nothing here for you. A few more teams still failed to reply to me. Failed again. But I kept going and I did the same process over and over and again and I wrote more and more and eventually people started writing to me saying, I'm afraid we don't have a job for somebody of your experience because you're lacking in this particular area. We need somebody with this. And when I got that, when that failure came back to me, I saw a nugget of information that I could use to go again. They were told, they were telling me specifics about what I needed to do to prick their ears up, to get their attention. I needed experience in that particular field. So I went away and very specifically, I got that experience. And then of course, I wrote back to them. I told them that over the last three months, I'd taken on board what they'd said in their previous letter and I went away and now I have that experience. I've been doing that now for three months, working with this particular team on this particular area. And on the most part, many of those people wrote back to me still saying no. This was a process that went on for years. People telling me no. I wrote hundreds and hundreds of letters to all of the Formula One teams. I still have a stack of them at home, the rejections that came back. All of them saying no. Every one of those letters was a failure, if we take failure in its most simple form. Now, some people would have given up after the first no. Many people would have given up after 10 no's. Most people would have given up after 100, 200 no's, but I didn't. I took every one of those failures and I learned something from it about how to re refine the process that I was going through, telling them something different every time, maybe changing the layout of my CV, trying to make it stand out in a pile of CVs, making sure I had the relevant experience that they were asking me to get. And of course, eventually, McLaren, well, McLaren caved in <laughs> and invited me in for an interview. And the rest, as they say, is history. But that was hundreds of failures if we go back to the way we teach people about failure as kids. I set about something. I set myself a challenge. I activated that challenge. I actioned it. 
and it failed over and over again, hundreds, literally hundreds of times. Now that process was part of the learning process. Every one of those rejections taught me something else, taught me, gave me another opportunity to look or think deeper about the problem, to go back and try it a different way. And of course, in the end, I got the result that I was looking for. It took me a long time, but I got there. So that was my first real lesson when it came to motorsport and certainly Formula One about not using failure as an endpoint. If I think back and if I'd said when right at the very beginning of that process, okay, it's going to take me three years to get into a Formula One team from the moment I decided to make that my dream, to make that my goal. If I'd said in three years time from now, I want to be working as a Formula One pit stop mechanic, I'd have taken that. I'd have said, yeah, that's great. Brilliant. What do I need to go through to get there in three years time? Well, what I needed to go through were the steps that I went through, the failures, the knockbacks. And in three years time, I was a Formula One mechanic. Life teaches us that every one of those knockbacks is a failure and a point to stop or give up. We failed, we've done a bad job. But my attitude was slightly different in that it was just part of the journey. I didn't see that in every moment. Of course, I was devastated when I opened another letter and it was a rejection. But when I now look back, I realise it was all just a journey towards the ultimate success, which I achieved. And as I went through my Formula One career, that's exactly what things enforced in me. This is what, that, that notion of never stopping or never giving up and using the failure as an important part of the process or journey is something that the industry backed up in my mind to the point where now I don't even think about it. I see that as exactly how we have to achieve whatever our goals are that we're achieving. There were a whole host of failures, as I said, there were different types of failures. There were a whole host of failures that I experienced within the world of F1. When I got my job, that dream came true. And within the first couple of months, I was working on the test team. I'd gone to a test in Spain as this young new kid. I was only 22 years old. I was the youngest guy on the team. At 22 years old, we're all making massive failures, we're all making mistakes. At 22 years old, I was massively embracing the party lifestyle that Formula One was almost encouraging at that time. And at 22, I was like a rabbit in the headlights. I was making poor decisions all over the place. I was going out and enjoying that party lifestyle probably way too much. I made a huge number of errors to the point where actually those continuous errors away from the racetrack nearly cost me my job on a number of occasions. But I was young and I was experimenting and I was trying new things and I was enjoying myself. I wouldn't change any of it. I came so close to losing my job on more than one occasion. I had that horrible sinking feeling that you get in your stomach when you wake up the next morning and you know you've done something stupid the night before. I still wouldn't change any of those moments. Sickening though they were, every one of them taught me a little bit more about what I was actually doing there. Of course we wanted to enjoy ourselves, of course we were to embrace the lifestyle that came with being an F1 mechanic, but obviously we were there to do a very serious job too. And the two couldn't encroach on each other. A couple of months into my, my tenure at McLaren, I got sent from this test in, I think it was Barcelona where the race team had been racing at the Italian Grand Prix that weekend. And on the Monday morning, when I was setting up for a test, 
the team manager came in and said, right, he wants me and another guy to drive from Barcelona down to Monza because at the weekend there'd been a really unfortunate incident where there'd been a collision in the race. A wheel had become detached from a car and tragically killed a marshal, a fire marshal at the side of the track. Now that wheel hadn't come from our car, but the FIA had impounded a group of cars at the end of the race. There was a police, a legal investigation being launched into responsibility for this death. And the FIA had requested that components be removed from our car together with some others. And I was being sent to Monza to go and strip the components off. A, it was a front suspension or a front corner off of our car so that they could be taken away and be inspected. They were inspecting things like tethers and suspension mounts and designs and all these kind of things to understand how a wheel could come off a Formula One car and kill somebody. Now that journey down to Monza, that process of stripping those suspension components off the car, I mean, literally just nuts and bolts, really quite a simple job. But that process was one of the most sombering days in my career because what I was doing was I was handing over this stuff, putting it into a sealed bag so someone could take it away and understand how just yesterday at this sporting event that in my first couple of months at the team, I hadn't been taking too seriously. I'd been partying way too hard and the bit in the garage, the work was just the bit that was getting in the way of me going out and having a great party weekend. And yet all of a sudden, this sporting event had taken somebody's life not even a competitor, someone who had volunteered their services to enable that event to go on. It was tragic. That failure on the part of Formula One as an event had led to the loss of life, the most serious outcome of any failure that I can think of. And yet, whilst clearly, tragically, it was too late for that guy, that poor fire marshal didn't get a second chance, the learnings that come from a moment like that are crucial to the way the sports and people go on about their life. For me, on a personal level, it was a game changer. It woke me up. It gave me a kick up the backside to say, you're doing something serious here. You're building a car that somebody is getting strapped inside and traveling at 200 miles an hour. The consequences could be potentially life-threatening to what you're doing if you don't take your job seriously. Sometimes we need that kick up the backside, that little wake up call to give us the second chance and the learnings to make sure we're better as we move forward. And tragically, some people don't get the second chance. As kids, when we learn to drive, the number of close calls that I had when I was 17 made me a better driver today. But for so many people, they don't get the second chance. They didn't get the near miss. They paid the ultimate price. And whilst they can't learn from their mistakes, we all can. Other people can and need to. When Ayrton Senna and Roland Ratzenberger were killed at Imola back in 1994, one of our sport's darkest days in, in recent years, those two guys will never live to see the benefits or the changes that came about off the back of those tragic events. But those failures that we had led on to an array of safety improvements that have meant the drivers of today, the fans of today, the marshals, the mechanics, everybody involved in our sport is involved in a far safer sport than they were back then. 
we learnt from those failures. It wasn't a stop point for our sport. If we'd stopped and given up, what was the point of all of that that had gone before? What was the point of the failure? If I had given up when I wrote a hundred letters to Formula One teams and got rejections from them all, what was the point of doing it? All of that effort and time and the dreams and everything else, they would all have been gone and wasted. So we can't see failure as an end point, but just a stepping stone onto being better next time. So the sport has become safer. Now, we don't always analyse, especially when we're young, we don't always analyse in black and white and write a report on what went wrong in things in our life, of course. We've just had recently a report from the FIA, a really detailed report on the learnings that can be taken from the big fireball crash that Roman Grosjean was involved in in Bahrain last year. Now, that's a black and white list of things that we have assessed and can learn from off the back of that epic failure. For most people, though, on a daily basis, we're failing constantly, sometimes tiny things, sometimes bigger, more significant. Rarely do we actually sit down and make a list of what we could do better next time. What went wrong? What could we learn from that failure? But we still do it. We do it subconsciously. We take things from every single thing that goes wrong and apply it subconsciously or otherwise to moments in life where we do it further down the line. That's experience. That's why we become better at things as we get older, because as well as doing well in certain things, we inevitably fail. And one thing that Formula One has taught me on many occasions is that we learn so much more from our failures than we ever do from our successes. And one of the reasons for that is that you know, I talked last week about celebrating success, a hugely important part of the process. But when we are successful, we take that moment to celebrate. We pat each other on the back, don't we? Quite often what people do is when they have success, when they win, they're less motivated to dig deep and find more and more ways to be better. Because there's that other age old saying of, well, it ain't broke, so don't fix it. When you're winning, when you're at the front, you have less motivation, typically, to dig deeper, to look harder, to work harder, to find ways to improve. When you're failing, the pain of that failure is deep. It hurts. When you're a competitive individual or a competitive team in a world like Formula One, and believe me, I have felt it, the pain of defeat or failure hurts so much that it drives a desire in competitive people to never want to feel like that again. The feeling when you have great success, it's amazing. It's an incredible feeling. Spraying the champagne or leaping around at the end of a race that you've won is amazing. But it doesn't last anywhere near as long as the pain of defeat. Ron Dennis used to say to me or to us, and this was a quote that he used to say regularly that I always used to chuckle at because it felt a little bit Eric Cantona-esque, a little bit like the seagulls are chasing the trawler, that kind of thing. <laughs> he used to say at the end of a, a poor weekend where we had a, a, a failure, where things had gone wrong, he used to say, I allow myself Sunday evening, the night of the race, to obviously analyse what went wrong, to learn 
what we can from the mistakes or the failure that's just happened. What can we take from it? And we'd analyze that in that forensic detail that we did everything at McLaren. And then you go to bed on Sunday night. Monday morning, he used to say, I allow myself the time between waking up, swinging my legs out of the bed and my feet landing into my slippers to dwell on what happened yesterday. And the moment my feet are in the slippers, we would face forward and we'd focus on the next challenge or the next race and what we can do better. And whilst we all sniggered at the back of the class like a bunch of giggling, naughty teenagers, it was true. And it makes a lot of sense. Of course, we have to analyse the failures. Of course, we have to take whatever we can. We have to understand why something went wrong and then learn from it and apply that into what we do next. Very quickly, we need to focus on the next opportunity because that pain of defeat, whilst it will always be there, and it's always a driving motivator to never want to go back to that place, it can also be debilitating if you let it fester. And so from those failures, one of the keys to success is finding a way, a system, a mechanism to switch out of the depressing, defeated feeling that you have after a failure like that and start turning that motivating negative energy into a positive where you found something, you know what went wrong, and we can now apply that to whatever's coming next. We became very good at that, at switching that feeling off, knowing that it was always there. We didn't want to go back to the place where that would become overwhelming again. We knew it was there as a motivator, but we used the things that we had learned. Because we delved so deeply into the failures, we found sometimes more opportunity than we would have done had we never been through the failure in the first place. If we had a successful race, of course, we'd have looked through the data, we'd have looked for problems, we'd have had a discussion, but we'd have never delved as deeply into the failures had we not had them. Therefore, we can often learn more from when things go wrong than when things go well. And there are some great examples of this over time. I remember in 2003 when Adrian Newey set about designing a revolutionary new car that was going to bring us back to the front of the field, the MP4 18. With that car, he came up with some crazy, wacky, pioneering ideas that hadn't been seen on a Formula One car for a long time, sometimes ever. An example is that that particular car Bucking the trend at the time came up with a really narrow, needle-like nose cone. Something that today we see a lot of teams edging back towards. But back then it was very, very unusual. One of the challenges of that, I mean the advantage of it was it was aerodynamically better. It gave us a big, significant aerodynamic gain. But the challenge of getting it done right was getting it through the crash test, the FIA crumple test. That was a huge challenge to make, to enable that to happen because with a wider cross section of the bigger noses of the time, you had more material as a crumple zone to absorb the energy from that front impact test that we had to go through. With a much narrower, very thin nose, that became an enormous task. I remember walking into the R&D department at McLaren on more than one occasion, actually, whilst we were going through this process because they used to do their own crash tests in the R&D department. And I remember walking in. This was maybe the fifth, sixth time that the guys in there had tried to pass this crumple zone test inside our own factory. Every time it had failed miserably. 
And when I walked in, the guys that were doing this process just rolled their eyes. They shrugged their shoulders. They had the attitude that, my goodness, this is pointless. There is absolutely no way we're going to get a nose this thin to pass this crash test. It's ridiculous. We're wasting our time here, is what they thought. The first crash test that we'd done had been an absolute joke. The thing had, thing had crumpled like a, a piece of paper. You know, people were laughing at it. But then, of course, we went back to Adrian. Adrian redesigned it. We tweaked it. We realised that some calculations had been overlooked or, or done wrong. And we changed things and we went back and we tried, tried again and it still failed. And that process repeated itself. We were now, when I walked in, on about the fifth or sixth go, having failed miserably every single time. That process of failure, learning, tweaking, modifying, adapting, and then going again, happened well into double figures. I don't know the actual number, but eventually we passed that test. Because every one of the failures taught us something that could help us to get closer to our end goal. And we passed that test. Something that nobody thought was possible at the time. All because we were after a small aerodynamic gain from redesigning and reshaping the front end of our car. Thinking outside the box had meant that we'd had to break new ground. We'd had to take risks, as I've talked about in previous episodes, and from those risks quite often come failures. And if we're well aware that by breaking new ground, by doing something different, we could well end in failure here. We could well see failures on numerous occasions. As long as we accept that, and we go into the process knowing that's a real possibility. Choosing to believe that that failure isn't the end. That's not a point where we give up. We point the finger and blame somebody. It's just a part of the process to getting to where we need to get to. Which is what we did. We failed. We tried again. We failed. We tried again over and over. And then we succeeded. And we could have only possibly succeeded by going through those failures to get there. Now that MP418, as many people know, never actually raced. That was a car that ultimately was deemed a failure because so much time and money and development was put into that car. It was revolutionary in so many areas and yet we couldn't get it to work. It crashed in some really bizarre crashes when we were testing it. Alex Verts ended up refusing to drive it anymore because of some huge, enormous shunts that were largely unexplainable. Every time the thing came back in from a run on the test track, we had to meet it at the garage with fire extinguishers because we knew it would be burning bodywork by the time it got back. It was a disaster on so many levels. But there were concepts on that car. Things like the new narrow nose cone. Things like exhaust blown diffusers, which at the time were highly unusual. But Adrian saw value in trying to develop those concepts. Now, at the time, we couldn't get them to work in the time frame that we had, in the budget that we had. We just weren't advanced enough with things like materials or an understanding of these new concepts to be able to fit them into that year's car or that year's program. So we abandoned the MP418. The following year, we came up with an MP419 that was a tweaked version of the 18, didn't really work. And halfway through that year, we came up with another car, the MP419B another evolution. Now that car, that car started winning again. And the following season in 2005, the MP420 was one of our most successful cars. With that car, which was 
an evolution from the MP4 18, 19, 19B and then the 20. A car that could not have existed without the failures of the ones that had come before it. Well, that car won more than half of the Grand Prix that season. It won 10 out of 19 races in the hands of Juan Pablo Montoya and Kimi Raikkonen. That car was fast. It wasn't perfect, it had some reliability issues, but it was fast. Things like the exhaust blown diffuser, of course, went on to dominate Formula One as a technology. Actually, Adrian pioneered that when he got to Red Bull and took the concept under his wing, took time at Red Bull to make it work again. And it became a hugely successful technology, something that everybody ended up adopting. Narrow nose cones also now becoming the norm across the board. These are things that would not exist if people hadn't failed when they tried to do them earlier in life. It's the same with anything. You can't fly a rocket to the moon without having numerous failures before, before you put people in it and go and do it for real. And if you send a rocket up, a test rocket, on the first day when you try and reach the moon and it blows up, what are you going to do? Are you going to stop and say, well, we failed. Sorry, guys, we gave it our best, we failed. You don't. You see that failure as just part of the journey, part of the process. And if we were to teach children that that's the case, if we were to teach people in life that failure is absolutely fine on many occasions, we shouldn't even be calling it failure. It's just learning. It's just part of the experimental process to achieve something that maybe no one's achieved before. Some of the biggest failures in Formula One have led on to the biggest successes. Those deaths at Imola in 94 are undoubtedly some of the biggest reasons why Formula One today is so safe, relatively speaking. We could not have had the success of producing safe Formula One cars today if we hadn't had the failures earlier in Formula One's life. Part of the process to getting to success. When I think back to my career, one of my biggest successes that I was part of at the team, of course, was Lewis Hamilton's World Championship win in 2008. An amazing success. I mean, the ultimate success in Formula One terms. It's the holy grail, winning a championship. If you remember the way that happened on the final day of the season in Sao Paulo uh, in 2008, it was the most dramatic finish to a Grand Prix, to a season. We won that race in the last corner of the last lap of the last race of the season. It was unbelievable. It was an incredible sporting moment. But think back 12 months earlier, same racetrack, last day of that particular season in 2007. We went into that race with both of our McLaren drivers as equal favourites to win the World Championship that year. And then there was Kimi Raikkonen, who was a bit of an outsider, an underdog in third place, still mathematically able to win. We came away from Sao Paulo that weekend with neither of our two guys having been successful and Kimi as the world champion. We failed on an epic level, on a number of different levels. If you remember, Lewis had a technical issue with the car that pegged him back for a number of laps. But actually, those failures in 2007 were way, way deeper than that. 2007 as a season, as a championship for us, was 
successful in that we produced probably the best car, probably the fastest car of anyone on the grid that year. We were successful in that we employed two of the best drivers anywhere on the grid in Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton. We were successful in that we had a great team in almost every area. We had almost all of the ingredients to produce this fantastic season. Should have been the best season of my career and all of my colleagues' careers as well. And yet, I'd say it's right up there as one of the worst. Because we failed on so many levels. We failed very publicly through things like Spygate, the Spygate scandal where somebody within our team at the high end of the design department had taken illegally drawings, information, data from Ferrari in this underhand dealing and spread it amongst a small group of people in our team. We benefited from that underhand dealing. We were branded as cheats. That hurt. Massively, that hurt. I was branded as a cheat, as a member of this McLaren organisation, and yet I'd had nothing to do with it. That hurt me massively. We were banned from the Constructors' Championship, something that we would have won hands down and relatively easily, something I'd craved after for all of my time at McLaren and in the sport. And yet it was taken from us because of that incident. That hurt, still hurts today. We failed on a level that many other people didn't see. We failed internally because our team almost imploded. We combusted inside. We had two drivers that fell out. The two teams of people around those two drivers gravitated around their own drivers and fell out with each other. We had this enormous split down the centre of our garage. It was a, an awful place to work that year. The communication between the members of our team dried up. We saw people wearing the same uniform as us that standing just a few feet away on the other side of the garage, not just as competitors, but as the enemy. And we began withholding information. We began trying to mislead people. We had one of our drivers handing out little brown envelopes of cash, trying to influence people to join their side, to encouraged the support of one side of our team over and above the other. Unbelievable stuff. If you want to know more about that, you can check it out in my book, by the way. <laughs> Plug. <laughs> that year was disastrous on so many levels. We failed as a team in the most enormous way. But I'll tell you what happened off the back of that epic failure. We all became better. Because whilst it hurt, and when we got to Sao Paulo in 2007 and Kimi walked away as a world champion, whilst that hurt for us, I was also pleased for Kimi. He was a friend. But I very quickly began to get over the pain of losing on that day because I was already so angry with so many elements in my own team. And that was part of the failure. We weren't working together. We were fighting against each other. How on earth can any team operate like that? So as we move into 2008, the following season, I'd been given a job, a new job that was created for me. And part of my role was to make sure that can't happen again. Part of my role was to make sure that communication between both sides of our garage flowed freely, that we worked together, that we shared information, that 
if somebody found something on their car that it was disseminated evenly amongst everybody else in the team. Part of my role was to ensure that both cars were being built to the same standards, that we had an even playing field on both sides of our garage for the drivers, but also for the mechanics and engineers so that nobody felt like one side of the garage was getting preference over the other. I had to create a team that worked well together, that bonded well together, that talked with each other and appreciated that if we wanted success, the only way we could do that was by doing it together. And the biggest thing that I was able to use to make that happen was a very clear example of how it doesn't work in 2007. I had evidence to show people, if we behave like this, we will fail, we've done it. So if we behave like that again, we'll get the same failures. And so we need to do this, we need to do this differently. We need to try working in this way. Now, I didn't have any absolute answers at that stage as to the key to success, but I definitely had the answers of things that would lead to failure because we'd done it. And that is where those learnings come from. If we hadn't been through that failure, at some point we might have stumbled into some of those mistakes. We may well have developed failures because at some stage we'd trip over ourselves, we'd fall into the same trap. But by going through the failure and then learning from it, we were able to prevent it from happening again. And of course, in 2008, things became better. We did me manage to get the team working better together. We managed to get the car working on a much more reliable basis. We managed to keep the season alive right through to the end and have belief, something we definitely didn't have in 2007. We weren't making crazy decisions like we made in 07 in China, where we were so focused on beating just the people on the other side of our garage that we lost sight of the big picture and Lewis ended up in a gravel trap in the pit lane purely because of that spite to try and beat the other side of our own team. There was more evidence there to show us how not to do things, more evidence to show us how not to do things than there was evidence of how to show us how to do things. We could figure out how to do things. We could experiment further. We may well make further mistakes, but we know we're not going to make the same mistakes because we've got evidence to prove that doesn't work and it leads to those failures. That was one of my biggest lessons, and it's still one of my biggest lessons. 2007 is the biggest example that I now use when I go around the world talking to enormous companies, massively successful companies around the world. I don't always tell them how we can do things just better. I often just tell them how not to do things that might lead to some of those failures. 2007 taught me some of the things, some of the biggest lessons that I have ever learnt in building a high-performing team. Because I was able to apply those lessons in 2008, I was actually able to get evidence of, actually, of that working. I was able to test a theory, did an experiment in 2007, it didn't work, it ended in failure. I took the lessons from that experiment, I applied them in 2008, and it worked. Not all of them, but it worked. We got some success. And so you keep those things that are working well. You find out what didn't work so well and you go about improving those. And that's how you're constantly striving to be better and better and better. You can't do that without failure. One of the hardest things to do, especially 
outside of work in our home life, especially if you've got kids, is allowing the people around you, especially kids, allowing them to fail. If we're going to say that we get our biggest learnings from failure, how can we as parents go through their early years mollycoddling them, protecting them from everything? If they never fail all the whilst they're in our care and then we release them out into the world, they're going to fail then and they're going to fail harder. They'll be less resilient to those failures. They won't know how to deal with them because they've never experienced them. And one of the hardest things to do as a parent is allowing your children to fail. But it's also one of the most important. I now have to go through that myself and I found it very difficult. But I now realise that I have to let them fail. Of course, I'm going to monitor it. Of course, I'm not going to let them hurt themselves or go through anything really tragic or serious. But I need to let them make mistakes because that's how they become well-rounded. That's how they learn more quickly than if I'm just telling them what to do. They need to experience the pain of that failure to make sure that they never allow themselves to go back to that place. So whilst failure is a really important thing to go through and experience, it's also important to teach people how to deal with it. To overcome the failure as quickly as possible. To accept that if it's happened, we can't change it. When, once you've had your failure, once the result has happened and you lost or you failed, there's no point wasting energy on that moment anymore because it's gone. The only thing that we can do next is react to the failure. And this is what I tell my children today. The most important thing is how we react to failure. It's not the failure itself. It's accepting the failures happened and that we can't change it. And then switching to a mindset of, okay, what can we learn from it? What could we have done differently perhaps to prevent it happening next time? Is there something from that failure that I didn't know before that I now know that I can add to my armory for the next time I go out into battle or I go and face another challenge? It's those nuggets of information we need to extract from the failure. And to do that, we need to be clear-headed. One of most people's biggest failures is actually not reacting to the original failure in a clear-headed manner. You have a choice at that point. Do you go again or do you stop? Do you spiral into a depression or a, a sinking feeling of that pain that's, that's overwhelming you? Or do you find a way to stop yourself and appreciate what's happening here? You are just on a journey towards the ultimate success. It's very easy to feel like it's the end of the world when a big failure happens to you. But if you can find a way to tell yourself that, hang on a minute, in six months from now, will I really look back on this as being the end of the world? Or will I have learned from it? Will I maybe have achieved my goals or successes by that point? And this will be nothing. This will be just a stepping stone. I talked previously in an episode about how Nico Rosberg had spoken to me about every time he'd failed against Lewis Hamilton, he didn't see it as a failure. He saw it as a stepping stone towards winning the world championship in 2016. Because every one of those failures taught him something else about what he needed to do to get the very best out of himself and to overcome the might of Lewis Hamilton. And in the end, it worked. And for all those people that say, well, he was lucky, of course he was lucky. Everybody who wins anything has to have some luck. 
But Nico Rosberg also won that championship because he put into place every single element that he had control of. He made sacrifices. He did everything that he'd learnt from the failures that had come before to enable him to be in the position to take advantage of that luck. That's how we win. That's how we succeed. Learning from failures is the most important part of life that we can go through. When I said at the beginning, some failures are blameworthy. Others are praiseworthy. The failures where people go through life experimenting, trying new things, pushing boundaries and failing, that's what I'm talking about. The MP4 18, I think, was a praiseworthy project because many people will look at that and say it was a disaster. It cost us a fortune. It probably cost us two years of success on the racetrack. I would still go through that process to get to where we got to. I don't see it as a massive negative. There are negative elements to it, obviously. But without the failures, we couldn't have had the successes. Without 2007 being such a disaster, I 100% believe that we would not have won the championship in 2008. Nobody will convince me otherwise. And I was in there. I was part of it. I'm telling you, that's the case. And I use that that reference of the 2007-2008 World Championship in everything that I do. When I come up against failure, I refer myself back to that. Because when we won in 2008, there wasn't one person in that garage that was still feeling down about the failures of 2007. It didn't matter anymore. It was just a stepping stone to the success that we were enjoying in that moment. But without it, we couldn't have done it. I'm going to leave you with a a brilliant quote that I love from Henry Ford, who says, failure is just the opportunity to begin again, only more intelligently. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one, guys. I really enjoyed making it. It's such an important message. For me, as important as the whole idea around celebrating successes and championing the things you do to boost motivation, those messages we talked about last week, just as important, although very, very different, as learning from failure and embracing failure at times, understanding failure. It can be, and I fully appreciate this, it can be so hard to understand a failure in the moment, to look at a failure when it happens and understand how on earth there can be any good to come out of that. If we can get to a point where we can analyse that failure almost instantly, how we can switch over to turning it into a positive more quickly, of course we get to move on more quickly, but some people I fully appreciate find that much harder than others to do. But even if you can't, get your head around that failure in the moment, at the time that it happens. If you can see nothing but negatives at the moment when it kicks you in the face, even if at some point later down the line, even if it takes you a bit longer, it's still worth revisiting the failure. It's still worth taking a deeper look at it, trying to find things that you learnt from it. We do it all subconsciously on one level, but we're all doing that. So if you want to find a way to be better than people around you or the competitors in your marketplace, then you've got to go a bit deeper than them. You've got to look even harder into your failure. Go way beyond the subconscious level that everybody does it and really delve deep to look 
for the hidden failures, the things that might well just give you an advantage that others won't find because they're not looking into those failures as deep as you are. It's an important message. Anyway, I hope you really enjoyed that story and the lessons that might come from it. Um, I want to leave you today, as I often do in every episode, with a couple of questions or messages that you guys have sent me over the preceding weeks. And I've picked out two this week that I think are really important. One's a question that I'm going to answer that I hope we can all benefit from because many people have asked me questions along a similar line. And the other is an amazing comment that I think sums up the very reasons that I do this podcast. So let's start with the question. This one came in on YouTube and it says, I'm trying to implement your mindset in my company, which is run by a bit of a dictator, not unlike Ron, I guess. How do you get through to these people who just think that their way is the only way when all the other employees can plainly see that there's a better way? Really frustrating when you work with a great team being let down by someone who's financially stable for life and doesn't realise that for some, this is their livelihood. And if it goes down, they're all screwed. Loving this podcast. Keep it up. We are listening. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for sending in that question. It's a really important question and I get asked that kind of thing quite a lot. The answer that I'm going to give you is, first of all, that I appreciate it's really frustrating when you think you've got an idea to do things better, to be more productive or to be more efficient or just to get the workforce into a better place and somebody's resisting that. Human nature is that actually we inherently are pretty resistant to change and some people, of course, do that on a far greater level than others. Some people find it much harder to embrace change than others and that's the first point. This may not be somebody deliberately being obstructive, it may just be that that person finds it much harder to appreciate why change is needed or necessary. And my response to that is normally, Is there a way that you can present your proposed change in a way that they will appreciate more? Have you got some evidence to support what you're saying? Is there some way you can show them how things could be better if you go through the change that you're proposing? Is there a way that you can show them evidence to support how things are not yet being done in the best way or the most efficient way? Is the company potentially losing out in some way? And can you show them that through some kind of representation, some kind of evidence to support what you're saying? Often people find it far easier when they can see what the projected result might be from a change than if they're just hearing it being talked about. And the other thing to say on this is that, can you find what that person's motivation is in life or in their company? Are they motivated simply by turning a greater profit? Or are they perhaps motivated by being the best in your business? Do they want to be number one? Do they want to be pioneering or a groundbreaking organisation within your industry? And can you tap into those motivations when finding a way to present your ideas to them? If it's simply about profit, is there a way that your changes might support a greater return on their investment, a greater profit? because you can be more productive or more efficient or because the workforce might be happier, more satisfied and more engaged and therefore more efficient and productive. Will that lead to greater profit? And can you show that somehow? Do they want to be pioneering? So can you pioneer in new cultures within the organisation that might be groundbreaking within your industry? 
find a way to tap into whatever it is motivates that person and then present your ideas in a clear, eloquent, concise fashion that might just trigger those things that get that person going. Remember, it may not just be a decision that that person's making, but that they're just finding it hard to understand the needs, the, the reasons that make these changes necessary. If you can find a way that might just trigger that person's emotions to engage with your ideas, that might give you some better success. And also, some people find it much harder to resist the ideas behind change when there's greater support for it already. Rather than just coming from one person, can this idea or this proposal for change come from a group of people if the workforce already back it? Now that doesn't mean ganging up and bearing down on them till they cave in, but showing that there's already some support for the change might just help them understand that it's not just a pie in the sky idea of one person, but actually it could be something that the organization from a personnel level could embrace. Maybe worth a go and I wish you the very best of luck with that. Now, the other one that I want to read is a comment that's come from somebody that, as I said before, really sums up for me the very reason that I do this podcast. Now, this one was also on YouTube and it reads like this. Hi, Mark. I've been an F1 fan for many years now and I've been a fan of your podcasts and videos for the past several years. I'm an operations and HR manager for a small manufacturing company in the US, around 50 people. And I found this series in particular to be very insightful and helpful. Last week's topic, attention to detail, was perfectly timed. I had a meeting last week with our facilities manager about organising our production facility and was able to reference several points from the podcast. I then sent him all in the series to listen to as homework. I also shared this week's podcast with our ownership team. Like for so many, this past year has been a struggle for our company. It's been easy to lose sight of our successes, be they large or small. This was a great reminder and a timely reminder. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to the next in the series. What a lovely, lovely message to receive. And please, if you're sending me messages of support in any format, please keep them coming because messages like that give me the motivation to keep getting up and doing this over and over again. So thank you very, very much. I really appreciate you all listening. If you can continue to rate and review the podcast wherever it is you're listening, it genuinely makes a massive difference to the way the podcast rises up through the podcast stores and how many people are able to listen to it. If you're watching on YouTube, a like and a comment and subscribing to the channel also makes a massive difference. And if you're just sending me a message on social media, believe me, I get them all, I read them all, and you will know if you've done it, I respond to them all as well. So please do continue to do that. That's all I ask from you. If you're enjoying the podcast, let me know. Let me know how, let me know why, let me know what you're getting from it. Thank you so much. I also need to say a big thank you to Omelagato Watches again for their support on this new journey of Pit Lane Life Lessons. If you haven't yet checked them out, please do so. Omelagatowatches.com. I do think you'll like them. I think you'll be impressed. Right, that's it for another week. Have a great seven days, guys, and I'll be back next Wednesday with more of the same on another subject. And until then, have a good one, take it easy, and I'll see you soon.